And your value chain is really where the big lever is. So in the case of Bayer, 25% of all carbon emissions are linked to agriculture. And our value share in the agriculture value chain in terms of egg input is also 25%. We are the largest player in that space. So 25% times 25% gets you to what is our share of the global carbon emissions if you look at the whole value chain. And it also gives you a flavor, Jerome, why I'm passionate to be a buyer because the opportunity to decarbonize such a huge part of the overall carbon emission game is something that I found uh, uh, incredibly compelling. Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast, the podcast for sustainable and compassionate leadership. You just heard Matthias Berninger, Senior Vice President, Public Affairs and Sustainability at Bayer. Matthias has over 30 years of experience in sustainability, is a father of five children and knows politics and industry inside out. He was elected four times as a member of the German Federal Parliament for the Green Party. And following his time in politics, he joined the Mars Company and then in 2019 Bayer, a life science company in the area of healthcare and agriculture. In this episode, Inner Green Deal founder Jeroen Jans interviews Matthias, exploring the question, what role can companies play in transforming the global food system? And to what extent does Bayer and the activities of Monsanto, which it bought in 2018, enable or contradict the efforts to improve biodiversity and sustainability? Some of you might feel this is a delicate episode. So let's listen carefully to the conversation between Jeroen and Matthias. I'm your host, Tom Weimann, and I'm glad that you're with us to discover your inner green deal. Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast. Matthias Berninger, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jerome. Nice to meet you. So I'm curious, how does a, a member of the Green Party and a former member of the German parliament become the head of the public affairs and sustainability of Bayer? Well, I guess it's much about detours that increase the understanding of the surroundings. I started to get politically active around the time of the uh, UN conference in Rio. And uh, that was one where biodiversity and climate change uh, were discussed quite intensively. The Agenda 21 was the big outcome of this uh, conference. And um, those topics never uh, basically lost uh, their attraction to me. I kind of, from that moment on, was thinking about them. So irrespective of the first half of my professional career, in, uh, in the political world or the, uh, the time I spent in business, it was always somehow linked to sustainability. And mm. for me, it's not so much about where you work, but what you're working on. Thank you. So talking about that, you joined Bayer now two and a half years ago and took on the sustainability role a year ago, more or less, I think. Well, it's a bit uh, more complicated. So I, I actually started to work from day one on, on the sustainability strategy. It wasn't meant to be that way, but then things fall into place. And uh, I actually, from beginning of 2019 onwards, was working with the leadership of the company on identifying how Bayer could change their approach to sustainability. So you say changed. 
what is changing or what had to change and what surprised you during those first years? Biggest surprise for me is the role of investors. Uh, so I believe that the invisible hand of the market turns green. Mm. That's true both for investors in the company as well as for bondholders who uh, basically decide about loans companies receive. So there's really a clear sign that in that world, uh, sustainability plays a more prominent role than what I would have guessed. So I came from a company that was privately held. I knew all the owners of the company personally. It was also a large one, Mars Incorporated, but it was the Mars family owning it. Mm -hmm. And my fear was moving into a public company, publicly listed company, that suddenly the investors would be my biggest problem. In fact, they have been key in driving sustainability. What, what are the types of demands? What are the types of changes that they look for as investors then? I think most of them rally around decarbonization. That's a big topic that now is not only consensus amongst most of the governments, 130 governments by now have agreed to decarbonization by mid-century. Also, most of the investors move in that direction. Uh, you then have additional focus on inclusion and diversity. That's a newer trend driven mainly by Black Lives Matter and uh, the political events in the United States. And generally speaking, of course, understanding of and managing of risk is a topic that is top of mind for investors. And what's clear in the age of the Anthropocene, that the risks of the man-made change of global climate become more relevant for their shareholdings. And what does this concretely mean then for a company like yours? So I think you talk about mid-century. That's, of course, quite a, quite a while away. I think you also set specific targets for 2030 to be climate neutral for your operations. What does that entail exactly and how far are you going there? Let's perhaps start one step before. Yeah? So if you, if you think about strategy, strategy is a really often used word. Um, I sometimes find it overused. But the way I look at strategy is basically I look at what is the analysis of the situation. Mm -hmm. That should be as objective as possible. And two people can look at the same analysis and come to very different conclusions. So The analysis is very data-driven, no matter whether you look at climate or at biodiversity or access to water, planetary boundaries affect value change chains quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. And value chains, on the other hand, affect planetary boundaries quite dramatically. So that's, that's now a given. Yeah? It's also a given that we will have more people around the world, uh, and most likely we have more wealthy people. That's also a given. And then the third given is that there is a whole lot possible in the innovation space. So there are things we can do to kind of solve some of the biggest problems we are facing. Now, you can do a lot of things with that analysis. And that gets to the second part of the strategy triathlon, which is what is your strategic intent? Mm -hmm. Because the strategic intent defines how you process your analysis. And the strategic intent in sustainability, to put it fairly like simple, is you can either be a company that is a profit maximizer. Basically, you say, I give a shit about sustainability. Now, a lot of companies do that. It's not a strategic intent that you would never see. Many of those companies still talk about sustainability because they have to do that to shield themselves and to allow them to maximize their profit. 
but they are still profit maximizers. Mm. The second archetype is CSR. So you care about sustainability, you have anecdotal great examples of what you're doing, but generally speaking, your business strategy and your sustainability strategy are two separate things. The third one is to become an impact generator. An impact generator in this case means your sustainability strategy is an integral part of your business strategy. And then the last one is what is depicted as B corporations. So you're actually a social business. In that case, you prioritize your social impact over your profitability. Um, and depending on what you choose, there is a set of coherent action that comes with it. In the buyer case, we said we want to be an impact generator. That has consequences for what we are now doing in our sustainability strategy. You have to act very differently with the strategic intent of CSR. And, and I think that was the big conversation we had in 2019. Where do we want to be? And what is the set of coherent action? And to put it very simply, if you want to be an impact generator, you need to generate impact. And if you want to generate impact, you need to measure the impact you are having. And that's basically um, how we look at our strategy. So we are measuring the impact of our own operations in, 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 in carbon reduction. We are measuring the impact of our suppliers in that space. And we are measuring the impact of our value chain. Hmm. And the interesting thing is our own emissions are in the three to four million tons. That's a lot, but it's not more than a large city. So it's not like gigantic, yeah? the big company, gigantic emissions. Then you have roughly four or five times more in your immediate supply chain. So we have like 80,000 suppliers. We spend 23 billion euros every year. And again, you have quite a huge footprint, but it's still not really big. It's, if you will, a region. And then you go for your value chain. And your value chain is really where the big lever is. So in the case of Bayer, 25% of all carbon emissions are linked to agriculture. Now it's 24 technically, but let's say it's a quarter. Yeah? And our value share in the agriculture value chain in terms of egg input is also 25%. We are the largest player in that space. So 25% times 25% gets you to what is our share of the global carbon emissions if you look at the whole value chain. And that's roughly the same amount India is emitting at the moment. Yep. It's like child's play to decarbonize your own operations. It's more complex but fairly doable to do it with your supply partners. But the value chain part requires a completely different way of looking at your business strategy. And that's kind of where we, where, we, where we netted out. And it also gives you a flavor, Jerome, why I'm passionate to be a buyer. Because the opportunity to decarbonize such a huge part of the overall carbon emission game is something that I found uh, uh, incredibly compelling. Hmm. Well, that, that sounds very meaningful. Thank you very much for taking a step back and really talking us through those strategic uh, uh, priorities. If you then talk about that challenge, of the impact generator, in particular in the field of agriculture. 
how, how does one go about that? Where do you start? As you said yourself, it's relatively easy to work on your own operations, decarbonize your operations. But how, how do you move beyond that? And is that? Is that part of your role or how do you do that? I mean, the beauty of sustainability being integrated in a business strategy is you can have a small sustainability team because a lot of people have huge responsibility to, to bring them to life. So that's why I often joke that everybody at Bayer kind of works at sustainability and, and therefore my job is fairly, fairly limited in terms of what I have to do. But one of the most underrated areas is the innovation pipeline of companies. So that's for me where it starts. What are the innovations that help us to make decarbonization happen? So a simple formula. Decarbonization without innovation will just be deindustrialization. It will lead to a huge shift from production from one place to another. It will not help the climate at all. Worst case scenario, it will even make things more difficult. What, what is the direction of our innovation budget? Let's say for our egg business, it's roughly a two and a half million euro budget. Every year, big billion euro. Billion, Every right. year being invested in, uh, in innovation. Hmm. It's not a lot of money if you compare it, let's say, to the 17 billion that BW has for their cars. But if you compare it to egg budgets, it's the second largest, the largest egg R&D budget in the world. China has, as a government, a slightly higher budget. The government of India, for example, just spends a billion on the top. So we are like the number two in the space. We are also far um, removed from our competitors. So with that innovation budget, how do you focus everything on three decarbonization-related topics? Less carbon emissions enabling farmers to remove carbon out of the atmosphere? And thirdly, how do you increase resilience of farming against the climate change that is going to happen? That's the lens through which we look at our overall budget. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we have looked at one resilience parameter, and that is yield per hectare. But that's now only one of the many, and that requires a change in the way you do uh, R&D. And Impact generating companies have an answer to the question, how do you shape your innovation pipeline? Companies that don't walk the talk usually can't competently talk about the innovation pipeline. Because they're talking about the future, they, they refuse to invent. That's normally not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And can you give a, a more specific example of where innovation can really make a difference mm -hmm. from your innovation? Pipeline or, there's a, there's you know. a tiny example. By mid of the decade, roughly 2025, plus minus a year, we will broadly introduce a new variant of corn. And that corn is dramatically shorter than the corn you currently see. So it's a variant that uh, naturally has been growing in a, in a very windy part in, in Mexico. And we now have been able to basically kind of turn that into one of the high-yield uh, cash crops that you need to turn it to in order to sell it as a seed in the market. What is the benefit of this short corn? First of all, it is resilient against storms. So uh, roughly 10%, sometimes 15% 
um, of a harvest in a year gets lost as a result of storms. So it is resilient against that. That was the initial purpose. Then we realized you can plant the short corn closer together. And other benefit. The third benefit was it needs less fertilizer. Fertilizer is one of the huge um, tributaries to the climate uh, relevance of agriculture. N2O, nitric oxide, is one of the major drivers of climate change. Another benefit we saw is it's more resilient against drought. And the last benefit we saw is it has deeper root systems, and therefore you can capture more carbon in the soil. So it's a Swiss army knife of decarbonization. It hits all the boxes I talked about. And it's one of the most important grains in the world, corn. And to, to draw a line under that, you can use 20% less land to produce the same amount of corn. That's a quantum leap in terms of efficiency of a plant. Seed growers are happy when they have a seed improvement of efficiency of 1%. 20% in one go is like an earthquake in the area of seed development. That's probably uh, the most compelling example of what's possible when you focus all your energy on the three pillars that I tried to describe earlier. Hmm. Oh, that's a very good example. C can we see such a crop in Europe or is that yes. uh, difficult? Yeah. Yes. Now, that gets us at the core of a big challenge in Europe. Mm -hmm. So we all know what the problem in the United States is with decarbonization. Mm -hmm. The problem is Republican buy-in. Yeah? Decarbonization can't hinge on elections. Now, in all fairness, we don't have that problem in Europe. Uh, the Green Deal is basically supported by a pretty large alliance. There's a grand coalition in Europe behind climate action. And that's the prudent thing because... Climate change really doesn't care about your political affiliation. It will affect you anyway. So you don't have that in the U.S. So partisanship is the problem in the U.S. In Europe, the problem is how open are we for innovation? So you can get the short corn in Europe, but you can't get all the benefits because gene editing is still not approved, even though there is progress. Yeah? So there's more and more willingness to look at the uh, gene editing and other features of the biorevolution and to include that into the innovation strategy. We can talk about the biorevolution in a second. But GMO are still a really, really difficult topic in Europe. And that's what I mean with, if you want to do decarbonization, you need to be much more open for innovation. Europe's weakness is that uh, on the innovation side, they are much less open than, for example, folks in the United States. That's why I believe the United States have an easier a pathway to decarbonization than Europe. I believe that the Republicans will come around on the topic, yeah? but they are open for innovation. Europe needs to increase their willingness to welcome innovation in order to achieve their ambitious targets. Okay. Well, well thank you. I think we have lots of uh, listeners from the European Commission and European Parliament. So I think your point's made. I, I could also probably flip it in the sense that there are also certain business activities of Bayer and formerly uh, Monsanto that uh, you know are considered in Europe to be harmful and not so much in line with with what you call the being a positive impact generator. I can give the example of uh, Roundup, which has this element of uh, glyphosate, 
which is a, a pesticide essentially, right? Which you have a, a huge claim against in the US with um, I think billions of 9.6 billion of reserves that you've made to settle these uh, allegations. That is, for instance, not uh, allowed in the in the European market, as I understand it. Um, no, actually, it is approved. So glyphosate is a, is an approved herbicide in, in the European Union as well. Uh, the last approval was 2017. And there's currently uh, a new round of approval. But, uh, Jérôme, um, let's face it. Uh, the general uh, problem is if business doesn't do the right thing, governments will do the wrong thing. And uh, when we acquired Monsanto, in the way Monsanto engaged with society, we have seen a lot of mistakes that led to resistance. So mm. perfect example, when GMOs were introduced, there was a huge pull for transparency, for labeling. Labeling was something Monsanto has fought like, like the devil fights the living data. Yeah? And, and we, we, we don't do that. I'm very much in favor of transparency. Another example is um, the studies pertaining to prove the safety of glyphosate have been hidden like a state secret when Monsanto applied for the re-registration in 2016. The next round of applications starting in 2020, led by Bayer, um, um, was completely different. We, we, we opted for radical transparency. Anybody who wants can read the full dossier. So these are behavioral challenges, so lack of transparency that lead to distrust and that kind of lead to a certain thing. The other problem with glyphosate, I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy to admit is, um, there are a lot of eggs in the glyphosate basket. It's the number one herbicide being used in the world. No other pesticide is used more often. And as a result of that, we are, we are very dependent globally on that one uh, active ingredient. Um, so we invest 5 billion over the next 10 years in finding alternatives to glyphosate. Not because we believe the accusation that glyphosate is harmful, but we believe that we shouldn't only depend on one solution when it comes to, to broadband herbicides. In any case, Glyphosate was the first um, uh, kind of herbicide against which plants were made resistant with the help of GMO technology. But you are now talking about resistance against five, six herbicides when you look at the pipeline of um, of crops. So we, we are loosening a bit the, the dependency on only one solution. Mm -hmm. But let me also share a benefit. Yeah? In the United States and in uh, Latin America, Glyphosate has enabled no-till farming. And the benefit of no-till farming is you keep more carbon in the soil, you disrupt the soil less, and you expose less of the soil to, to soil erosion. Um, in Europe, you still need a plow to do your job because you don't have herbicide-resistant seeds. But the plow is a problem for decarbonization. So if you want to decarbonize European agriculture, um, you need to find a solution for low or no tilling. And, and this is one of those inconvenient truths that uh, uh, only technology can solve, because on the other hand, a growing world population will demand more food. Yeah, so stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, actually, we are unstuck. That's the beauty. We have mm -hmm. solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we yeah. need to unstuck our own kind of limitations. 
like we needed to unstuck our conversation about biodiversity. Mm -hmm. So when the, the International Panel uh, for Biodiversity and Environmental uh, Safety published their study in May 2019, it clearly paints the picture of the role agriculture has in destroying biodiversity. Agriculture does that in two ways. One way is the actual use of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. The other way is the land use change that is linked to agriculture. Deforestation that then leads, let's say, leads to, to land where cows are grazing or deforestation that leads to grain production like soy or, or, or corn or whatever. So those are the two main culprits of agriculture's contribution to biodiversity loss. The challenge is, if you are radically against pesticides, you need to have the willingness for more land use change. So that's why the solution is not mm -hmm. simple. Yeah? yeah. So I think you need to you need to allow pesticides, but you need to allow the pesticides that have the least environmental impact. Mm. And you need to invest in, in intensification in a sustainable way because you want to curb land use change. So that's kind of the the complexity, the systematic approach to things. What doesn't work is to create a vision for agriculture in Europe that is basically a vision of de-intensifying agriculture and then to import the land use change because you import all your feed for animals from other parts of the world. That strategy has a flaw and that flaw is a big challenge in the thinking at the moment when I look at many of the people who are criticizing us. Yeah, that's a good point. When we explore that a little bit deeper, um, so I can see the role of innovation against these challenges. I, I wonder also when you say thinking needs to change, how mindset change and working in addition on innovation, but working also on mindset, mm -hmm. what would be helpful mindset change? And you covered a number of points that relate to uh, regulations and views of GMOs, for instance. But how do you go about mindset change in your, let's say, let's start with your organization? What mindset change do you think is necessary and how does one go about that? So there's a big discussion about the role of science and society. So people like to claim follow the science. But because they're humans, they usually don't like to follow the science that somehow is on crash course with their own beliefs. Right. Yeah, so I'm going back to this report that I believe is a really powerful report. Um, um, it's as important in biodiversity as the IPCC report was for climate change. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's, it's of the same quality. There is a sufficient scientific consensus on the biodiversity challenge. We don't need to analyze that. That's clear. So now, what did the oil industry do when they saw the science? They decided that the result is inconvenient and their actions were designed to undermine the result of science. It's a tactic industry likes to do. And so the shift in thinking at Bayer is, let's embrace that report. Mm. Why? First of all, biodiversity loss is a huge problem for agriculture. If I don't have pollinators, lots of plants will not grow. 
if I chop down the rainforest, it's called rainforest for a reason, I will have less rain. Lots of biodiversity and, and climate change caused by, for example, deforestation or, or the drying out of peatlands makes the work of farmers much harder. And it's pretty clear that agriculture both causes problems like climate change or causes problems like biodiversity loss, but also suffers from. So it's actually really good business to think about this differently. Hmm. But let's say this is only your second thought. The first thought is, if you are a science-based company, you need to be absolutely open for inconvenient scientific facts. You can't allow your own belief system or the pressure of your profit and loss cloud your thinking about the science. That's the biggest shift I think everybody has to make. It's really important that we stop claiming science only when it supports our argument. That's, that's crucial. We have to, for example, uh, in our glyphosate study, there are studies that do not come to the same conclusion as the studies we believe are the most important studies for, for an approval process. Do you include findings that don't support your case in your dossier or do you disregard them is a really important question. Science is not a democracy. There can be an outlier study that tomorrow changes the way we look at the world. So do you include that science? Do you pay attention to it? Are you open to it? Are you embracing different views? It's very, very important. But most importantly, when there is a sufficient scientific consensus and the consensus is inconvenient for your business, do you continue to see doubt about the consensus or do you change your business in order to um, basically deal uh, with the reality that is reflected by the science? And, 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 and it's not easy, but I think it's the better way to go. It's also in the long run more profitable for businesses. So, so this calls for trust. It calls for collaboration, I think, um, yeah. for better listening. I just wonder, you know, maybe just if, if I turn to you personally, how do you keep your head cool and how do you work on those qualities? Um, it sounds like you have a pretty intense job, uh, very intense challenges, people being quite upset sometimes <laughs> around you. How do you personally manage that? Uh, do you have a, a personal practice or how do you go about that? First of all, I'm super passionate about what I'm doing. And I have, generally speaking, and that's a, that's a sport I love cycling that taught me that I have perseverance. Yeah, and uh, the, it's always difficult to define things, but there is this term in English, grit. Yeah? Yes, grit. And the best way for me to describe grit is like passion times perseverance. So uh, I try to be um, as conscious as possible when I run into problems. Um, where do those problems come from? And sometimes they come from, as you said, with your inner green deal, they come from a loss of passion or they come from a kind of just a lack of perseverance. Yeah? And what, what I like to do is, is, is my favorite thing is I, what I spend a lot of time on my bicycle and I just listen to books while I cycle. Ah, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and these are usually these are like, like books about all of the kind of topics we are talking about. 
And of course, also podcasts are involved in it. So that for me is a combination of both um, filling my head and getting my head uh, free, if you will, at the same time. Mm. Yeah, And it's one of the things that uh, balances it. The other thing I love to do is cooking. Conveniently, I have five kids, so there's a lot of people to cook for. Um, so that's another thing. And then, of course, when you look at um, there are 25, the oldest, and 12, the youngest. Yeah? When you look at their lives and, and, and their struggles and, and, and their passions, kind of to focus on that is, of course, the ultimate way of just putting everything into perspective. And just out of curiosity, what, what type of conversations do you have at the dinner table with your children? How old are they, first of all? And the oldest is 25, the youngest is 12. Uh, mm. But I always uh, have to check who is now 12 and who is 25. Oh, so yeah. that changes. Yeah. Right. So sometimes the youngest is actually the smartest kid at the table and sometimes it's the other way around. Um, and uh, usually one of them acts out. And when you think nobody acts out, chances are you are the person that acts out of that. Yeah? So, so that's kind of something um, that, that I, I sense. In one week, just by coincidence, I had one of my sons like uh, on a photo next to Greta uh, at a protest here in Washington, D.C. And the other son on a school trip to Scotland um, pictured next to Adam Smith. Yeah? Oh, so, wow. And that gives you the spectrum of conversations that, that we have at home. In a nutshell, that's that's kind of, and there are also not cases, by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of input, yeah? and that's also why I feel like those who are kind of trying to prove Creator is wrong, or in in Germany there's a woman Luisa Neubauer, she's like in her mid twenties, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and and what she's saying is measured against like a yardstick of universal wisdom, yeah. I find that pretty annoying, yeah. A, we don't measure us against the same yardstick, and B, right. why would we expect that sort of consistency from people who are in their mid-twenties? Mm. Yeah. And what, what are sort of the type of things that they would like to see from you? What are their expectations? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I had a conversation with them to say, look, guys, um, I've worked for Mars. It's the company with puppies in the office that makes pet food, pet care, sells chocolate, as you know, chewing gum. Uh, and basically, you move from that company with free chocolate and pets in the office to Bayer that just bought Monsanto. So they were they were involved in the conversation on why would you do it, why wouldn't you do it. It also had a personal component because um, it was clear to me that my public profile in Germany would suddenly increase again. I live in Washington, but the pro problem with social media is it's it's borderless. So, of course, what people write in social media in Germany about me is something my kids see on their phone. So um, I always kind of was happy that I left politics when they were quite young because I think it's very hard for kids of politicians to kind of see the whole shit that is going on in the social media space being poured on their parents. And um, the good news was that I left uh, the political realm at a time where social media was literally doing baby steps. Yeah, and uh, I talked to them. I said, look, there will be people criticizing. And we also talked about the impact a company like Bayer can have compared to a company Mars can have. So I talked about the carbon footprint of the value chain of Bayer being India. At Mars, it's more like Croatia. Yeah. 
a beautiful country, by the way. My wife is Croatian. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Interesting countries. Interesting choices, yeah. Uh, but uh, but but of course, you, you you can make a bigger difference if you change something in India at scale than in a small country. Well, I, I thank you so much for your um, really open and engaged dialogue. Thank you. It's been really interesting to learn more about sort of the trade-offs and the challenges that you go through and as well as the, the long-term view that you have. So um, very interesting to hear about that and really grateful for your time. In listening to Matthias, I appreciated his ability to zoom out and give a strategic overview of the sustainability challenges of the global food system as a whole. Too often we zoom in on specific cases, which makes it easy to judge and difficult to see the intersections between food, agriculture and biodiversity. There were moments in the conversation, however, where I felt somewhat uneasy and ambiguous. Of course, Jeroen and I did our homework. But not being experts in crop science, it is difficult to understand the complexities of buyer's activities. Is buyer really a textbook example of sustainability? Perhaps not. But given its size and systemic impact, it really is important to have a dialogue. We will not be able to achieve a whole system transformation without the biggest players. And talking about transforming the global food system, the Inner Green Deal is collaborating with the United Nations Development Program on their Conscious Food Systems Alliance to explore how mindset, consciousness and inequalities can help to transform the food system from within. If you hear this and you're also interested to partner with us and the UN on this vital initiative, please do contact us. For this week, we invite you to reflect together with us on the following questions. How can I become more aware of the carbon footprint of the food that I eat? To what extent do my professional activities impact biodiversity? What simple things could I change to improve my carbon footprint and impact on biodiversity? In the upcoming episode, we will be welcoming Heather Graby the director of the Open Society European Policy Institute in Brussels. Her work has been published by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and The Guardian. Heather will give us insights on the interdependence of political science, activism and policymaking. Together with her, we will discover how democracies can prepare for a fast pace of change and a fair transition towards sustainability. If you like to start a dialogue or support the Inner Green Deal, please reach out to us via the show notes. Thank you for being with us on the journey to an inner green deal. Conveniently, I have five kids, so there's a lot of people to cook for. Uh, when you look at their lives and, and, and their struggles and, and, and their passions, kind of to focus on that is, of course, the ultimate way of just putting everything into perspective.